pastime. That's the only way to become what you were meant to be. Darkness rises. And light to meet it. I need someone to show me my place in all this. Come on! This is not going to go the way you think. Now to move on, let, let's talk about something else now. Uh, let's talk about a much bigger movie that's out in theaters. Let's Downsizing. let's segue. Well, well, you can listen to our other episodes. Pick any that. movie that's out right now; it'll be bigger than yeah, uh, the Endangered Species. <laughs> but no, I, I think you want to you want to talk about Star Wars because I want to talk about Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's still stuff that we can talk about with Star Wars. I mean, uh, you know, so the movie's now been out for a couple of weeks, and um, people seem really divided about it. It's an interesting thing to see the, this reaction. I mean, it. I, I from, know from the critics, it's getting po- it has positive reviews, and on uh, what they call Cinema Score, whatever that is, it has an A. Right. But um, on uh, but in the audience score on Flickster, uh, it has a uh, not great uh, score. Now, some of that could have been attributed to bots. I don't know if. You saw this article, by the way, that this alt-right group claimed credit for a lot of the negative reviews because they thought that, like, they're trying to make uh, Poe gay or stuff like that. What? Yeah. An alt-right group claimed credit for negative Last Jedi reviews. Um, Because why not? In this country we're in. All right. All right. Anyway, uh, that's, if you want to be douchebags, that's okay. up to you. But uh, but but what did you want to? What, what what you since you were a little uncertain about things, some things with the movie, have things settled for you in the in the couple weeks since then? All right. Well, let me clarify just a little because bit. I, I have a couple of thoughts after I saw the movie a second time too. I I after I saw the movie when I did the review with you and Matt. And Corey for a little while, I think. Uh, I said I came to the ultimate conclusion that I liked the film. Yeah. Inside my heart, I felt like I had a good experience. Uh, So, but I described this feeling of being unsure about the movie. Well, with the first half. Right. And I was, uh, a few days later, I think actually the next day, I went to talk to a friend who had seen it. And he had almost the same opinion that I did, mm-hmm. which is he felt confused by it, but he liked it. Okay. And then I listened to, I looked at a few more reviews and saw what other people on the internet were like. And I, you know, read Letter Media, read the RogerEbert.com review. And I kind of centered on what the source of my unsureness about Last Jedi was, uh, which is. Ever since the end of the prequels, we've been every we've been in this sort of unsure state about what Star Wars uh, about. We've been kind of afraid that Star Wars won't be good anymore. Mm, well, the well, yeah, the, the prequels kind of did that. It's, it's also just because when something gets this big, it, it's like Red Letter Media brought this up in their review too that 
it's almost like it can't just be a movie anymore. Yeah. Like, it has to be this re- event. Like, they, they, they showed the, the footage from those Star Wars yeah. conventions, and it's like a freaking religious thing. And, and the, look, I love Star Wars. That's... You don't do that for, like, anything. Like, anything well, movie-related. I mean... There, but there is a difference between like, oh, I'm at a convention, I'm going to see something nobody has seen before. There, you're going to have a much more positive response to that. Sure. Now, uh, the other thing I latched onto with the Red Letter Media Review is this idea that people are going to rush to say it's either the greatest or it's either the, or it's the worst. Yeah, and even as someone, that, you know, I, Which, I love the movie, but I'm not going to say like. I rushed to say it's the greatest thing. You right. know, I had a reaction to it, but that's. But there seems is. to be that knee-jerk reaction to where it's either the best or it's the worst, and that's the thing that really bugs me. That's I, I've talked about that like on another podcast where it's like I I hate it that there's this sort of, that we live in this sort of atmosphere about Star Wars where everything has to be awesome or it has to be terrible, and maybe and, some of and, that maybe and, yeah so maybe some of that comes also if like you're kind of. I'm not saying for everyone, but if you're kind of making things more about childish products or about infantilizing a culture, maybe that happens with certain people. Yeah. And and I feel like that's another result of the prequels. Everyone loved the prequels when they came out. Yeah. And for it, the most part, yeah. Yeah. I, I loved episode one. Episode two, I wasn't too hot about because I, I felt like it was you know the the front end was kind of boring but uh, and episode three i i saw it in the theater and i was like okay good and then later on i looked back and i'm like okay that wasn't quite i'm like okay i see the flaws there see, I, and, I, know, I, they're not that great see when i saw i saw all three movies and i um um i knew that i knew that all three weren't as good as the the original trilogy but i i had very positive reactions to all three of them now, may, now I think at those times I didn't. My critical faculties weren't quite as attuned. I think by the third one I was more aware of things, but I, I still defend the third movie as like easily the best of the. I, I would not trust any opinion I had about movies uh, between the ages of twelve and eighteen. Oh God! If I, <laughs> when I go back to some of the reviews I used to write on IMDb, yeah. I go like, oh. Oh, Who you, am I? You poor, you poor baby. Oh, <laughs> oh, God! What was I thinking? Now, you know, sometimes I have to double check myself. Uh, but, but but talking about yeah, this but, culture but, that rushes to say that this is the worst thing, and also to me, it almost strikes me my my when I was seeing all the the reactions to Last Jedi, especially the vitriolic ne- negative ones. Right. I thought about. Um, Back in the mid '60s, when uh, Bob Dylan went electric, <laughs> I don't know. If, for those of you who don't, I, remember, I've heard of this, but well, uh, I don't know a ton about it. Okay, well, here's the thing: there was a time period where, you know, Bob Dylan he grew in popularity, uh, you know, after he put out his first album to the point where, you know, he he was like this looked at as this mega folk hero in you know a lot of circles, like Johnny and, Appleseed, but with sunglasses. Yeah, I mean, he was a super cool dude. Like, he was, it's like the Beatles met Bob Dylan, and they are like, oh my god, we got to meet Bob Dylan, this is amazing. Yeah. And, you know, he was that type of cool. And then, you know, he, he puts out these albums where it's just him and a guitar and his harmonica. But then he decided, he, he put out uh, the albums uh, 
bring it all back home and uh highway 61 revisited that okay. those are the albums that had uh maggie's farm and uh, uh like a rolling stone like a rolling stone especially that was i think his first number one sure and you know on those he decided you know what i'm gonna I actually want to plug in and actually play electric and I'm going to bring in an organ player and a drummer and actually have a band this time. And, uh, sure. and I think, and there was even, I think this, this, uh, folk festival called like the Newport folk and jazz festival or something like that. And when he played, he, he performed Maggie's farm. And, and when I listen to the performance, it almost sounds like a, like a punk rock song. <laughs> <laughs> Now, granted, that's a bit jarring for people, but the reaction he got, like, there's a little bit of it in um, uh, the, the movie I'm Not There, which came out about 10 years ago, which was all about, like, the six Bob Dylans in one movie. Yeah. Um, they kind of address that, where, like, you see, like, these people leaving a concert, and, like, this is one guy who's trying to say, like, it's not my Bob Dylan. <laughs> it's not my Bob Dylan. It's, he's changed, man. He's changed. <laughs> Dennis the, Hopper. The, uh, sorry, um, but not everything's but Dennis Hopper. Um, no, but this. Uh, the, but, but, but no, but it's like it's a little bit like that reaction, like Star Wars goes electric, where it's like it's not my Star Wars. What, what the fuck is your Star Wars? I don't yeah. understand this. Like it's a fairy tale. It's it's a uh, it, it's, it's, it's what what is it doing that other Star Wars haven't done? And if it is doing things differently, why don't you try to examine what it's trying to do, as opposed to just go like this is different, stupidly into Luke Skywalker, right? And what's this this like casino and the, the, the okay, this casino scene I still don't like. I, I I'm fine with but, the casino, it, scene. but it's, it's, it's a little like, goofy. But there's this there's a struggle it seems for like the legitimacy of Star Wars. It's like if if you have a narrow sense of legitimacy, saying yeah. that only the first three films are the are great, that you can't mess with that, and that you can't do, and that you can't stray too far away from that, then it's gonna all fall apart eventually because you can't keep making those films the same way they were made back in the seventies and early. 80s. Otherwise, you're going to all. Otherwise, you're going to uh, emphasize the point that Rich Evans made on Half in the Bag, which is that you know the dirty secret of Star Wars is everything is really small and limited. Right. And now, granted, maybe when you're dealing with you know sci-fi fantasy that's kind of based in fairy tales, right? You know, maybe you don't have the world of wiggle room, but you have enough that you can try to explore with, you know, ideas of heroism and, you know, honor and, and deep galactic history and these, and the, this idea of the force and expanding on that. I mean, there might even be a a hint of truth to the idea that is limited. I mean, you're not going to get like an Ingmar Bergman star Wars movie. No, as much as you might want to see like, you know, uh, a Jedi facing death with a chessboard, or, or like, you know, right? Exactly. Like a, the, uh, but there are things. Per- persona, a Star Wars story. But there are things like outside of the main main trilogy that are very good that are Star Wars. Gendi Tartakovsky's Clone War series is an awesome series of uh, of is an awesome series of animated shorts, and it's uh, excuse me. And it's uh, it's basically just like this sort of pulpy war movie, 
movie like you you would have back in uh, in the early 20th century and you know ridiculous things happen in that that don't quite mesh with the rest of the star yeah. wars but still a hell of a lot of fun when you see it and yeah. you know last jedi has a lot of weird strange things that don't necessarily mesh with what what we know as star wars but i mean still pretty entertaining well also i i think though that the the trick is if i think that if you can pull off trying to challenge your audience in a lot of ways that you're not expecting that that's great and i think that rain johnson did that yeah a lot in this movie especially with luke skywalker it's interesting one thing that's interesting in this whole uh the past couple weeks i don't know if you've heard about the uh all the the hullabaloo with mark hamill no okay so what so here's apparently mark hamill on the press tour he's been going on for star wars and i think that he later explained it, I think, because, that he was in Singapore, some part of Asia on press, and he couldn't, he didn't have access to Twitter, and that's probably bullshit, but anyway, <laughs> he, he actually, he, here, I'll try to phrase this as, I, as best as I can. He said at first, he disagreed with the direction that Ryan Johnson was taking Luke Skywalker. Okay. He kind of questioned Ryan jo- some of Ryan Johnson's decisions as far as, where he was taking Luke's character, like he didn't think, you know, a Je- somebody who was a Jedi would give up so easily, for example, or or do this and that. Spoilers, um, but actually, no, it's first day of the film. Uh, Don't, it's okay. I, we're, we're after Christmas. I think we're okay now. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, but he said that eventually he 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 worked. He he still he thought all right. Well, you know, what? he's the director. Let me try to follow his lead. And eventually he saw what he was doing and said, I was wrong. Right. And, and they, they worked they, together on that. Yeah, they did. They, they, he ended up, uh, he ended up realizing this is not, you know, you know, it, well, he said, he, again, this might've been the thing where sometimes when you're doing press on a movie, you have to do like hours and hours and hours of interviews and you might get tired of answering the same questions. And a lot of times you don't remember exactly what you said for who. <laughs> exactly. And I think that he said like the one thing to somebody where he might have said something to the effect of, well, it's not my Luke Skywalker. We might just call him like Jake Skywalker now. Um, <laughs> but he admitted in that he was wrong, but nobody picked up on that on the internet. They just said Mark Hamill disagreed with Ryan Johnson's take. You know, even he thought he was going wrong. Right. And Mark Hamill had to come out, like this is just in the past couple of days, and apologize. Which, you know, to me, he had nothing to really apologize no. for. And now, it's, it's I, almost even like... If, even if, even if I, just, I almost called him Luke. Even if Mark Hamill disagreed with Well, no, well, the Johnson, thing is, is that he aired it in public. Right. That he's trying to promote the movie and he's saying that... I disagree with the director, but there, the problem is you also live in this soundbite culture where you don't get the context for things all the time. Right. But even if he had disagreed, like, what does he have to apologize for? Well, he he had to apologize for saying he ever said anything bad about Star Wars, because that's <laughs> going back to when the Half in the Bag review talked about, where it's like, you watch the... Uh, you watch that documentary about the making of Phantom Menace, and you know, George Lucas says, "You know, if I if I forget to say cut, you might have to remind me to say cut." You know, it, or um, yeah. it, you know, a little bit like warts and all, and now it's got to be this super well-oiled machine where nothing goes wrong and everything is agreed upon. 
Meanwhile, though, there you have in the Star Wars uh, behind the scenes, you know, uh, two directors who were uh, let go before filming even started and two directors fired mid-production. There's clearly some disagreements going on with directions of the movies. You can't pretend those don't happen. No, you can't. I don't I, well, start, well, they end up trying to wash it away. Like, like you almost try to forget that uh, the guys who made the Lego movie were making the Han Solo movie. You just forget that happened. It's like the Jedi mind trick. You don't need to see their movie. Right. You see Ron Howard's movie. <laughs> but, yeah, so I think that a lot of the hype around Star Wars kills it. it I, I also told somebody on Facebook that it almost reminds me of being a Yankees fan, <laughs> which is a little bit painful sometimes because yeah. I, I like the Yankees, but I hate Yankees fans. Really? Yankees, I, I don't like a lot of Yankees fans who are really obnoxious Jack and I, about it. Jack and I don't really talk about sports, but I, I'm really intrigued what he's saying. Well, Keep going. well, it, I'm not a big sports guy either, but I've grown up being a Yankees fan. Part, uh, I, uh, uh, I have too, yes. Okay, I didn't know that about you. Well, again, we don't talk about sports very much. <laughs> well, this isn't the and I, I this was, isn't the Jack and the Mad Dog, <laughs> right? I was raised a Yankee fan. Yeah, the same way. Like I, I just grew up, and it's not like I have like a super animosity towards the Mets or anything like that. I'm, no, I've been to like one or two Mets games Trust in my me, life. The Mets are harmless. Yeah, <laughs> but but you see sometimes this fervor with Yankees fans. Um, you know, or or sometimes it's also like the Red Sox, for example. Like right. Red Sox fans are like that too, and you sometimes just want to look at them like, calm down. Yeah. You know, it's just a game. You know, you're just watching baseball. You're just watching some guys. You, it's almost like to the point where people who are fans of Star Wars, like the super fans, talk about the movie as if, you know, like the way that some sports fans talk about their team, like, right. Yeah, we're doing all right this year. We're doing pretty good. Yeah. It's like you're not playing. Yeah. <laughs> you're not doing the work. I get so... Even... My brother is... He follows sports pretty closely. And, right. And sometimes... And I, and I, you, and I really don't care. <laughs> yeah. But... And so I try not to judge what, what he watches too harshly because, you Does know, he get super passionate? Well, he he does, but he he's pretty well contained. He's pretty he's a polite man, right? Who would not yell at another man about how his team sucks? Yeah. Uh, but when I see people like every once in a while, I do go to a Yankees game, or I do go to like something where there are sports fans somewhere. Yeah. And then some asshole like stands up and tells like and swears at some sort like outfielder who's just standing yeah. in the grass. I'm like, what? What is your problem? Yeah. <laughs> First of all, that guy can't hear you. Yeah. Second of all, we have to hear your garbage right, you know, right, you're right behind me. Yeah. And I'm just like, and even if whatever you were saying was effective, what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah. And that, and Star Wars fandom is, I have never encountered that. But I well, don't. Well, you haven't been on social media as much as, as I've seen. Is that a bad thing, Jack? Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, maybe you're okay. Um, I mean, because yeah. Well, well you the can't... thing is too. Also, sometimes the internet attracts, you know, the kind of attention towards something that is and, like and... super vitriolic. Like my, I, I went to go see Star Wars a second time with my brother, and he loved the movie. Yeah. But he's not going to be the type to suddenly go post on social media about it. Yeah, uh, and it's. 
let me get back to my original point. It's oh, like, yeah, it's, please. It feels like Star Wars kind of has to prove itself to a lot of people because yeah. Force Awakens had a mixed reaction. Uh, it played it safe. Did but... it have a mixed reaction, though? Okay, let me clarify. I did not feel very strongly about Force Awakens. When no, I walked no, no, out no. of the movie theater that night, I said, okay. I said it was good. This was a pr- film with problems, but I enjoyed myself, yeah. and it's not a great Star Wars movie. Right. And I was happy with that. I walked to my car, and I went home. Yeah, me too. I, I, went, I went home. I ha- I was thinking to myself, yeah, there there were problems here, here, and here, but you know, they, they set up enough to make another couple movies. And... I wasn't sure how Last Jedi would go. And I wanted some sort of signal from Last Jedi that things were going right. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get that until halfway through the film. Uh. So that was the the kind of unsureness I was feeling, which Mm. was this sort of, I don't know, like going into this theater, I don't know if this film is going to live up to my expectations. And I guess or, or my hopes enough. in any in any event. Okay, like, I, I I always hope for a good Star Wars film, but I ne- but I was like I don't know if this is a good Star Wars film yet, and that carried on through the first half until nearly the first third uh, until nearly two thirds of the way through, when all of a sudden everything clicks into place and that's why that casino scene was so weird to me mm. and that and it still it's seemed... been weird to a number of people i i enjoyed it but right. i get why it, it's a little bit of a goofy tone to throw into a movie that has a lot of uh um gloomy things going and on. it feels like a very strange diversion from the plot uh, to me and then things with like princess leia where I don't know. And then the stuff with Mark Hamill, which is kind of jokey, and I'm still not sure where it's going. And all this very strange stuff, which is very unusual for a Star Wars film, pops up over and over again in this film. Mm-hmm. And I still, I'm still trying to wrap my head around, is this a good Star Wars film or not? Mm-hmm. And, I'm just, and my brain is kind of like trying to take everything in and analyze it as it's going along. And finally, the second, the last third cements everything. And that's great. So, that's where the confusion came from. All right. And uh, now, now, but since now you're getting to, since the, since you saw the movie, you've had a little time to reflect. Have you thought a little bit more about why you were uncertain, or did it clear up at all for you? Yes. Uh, the the much more liberal use of humor, where you have these one liners from Mark Hamill. Uh, those were kind of foreign. Uh, that whole casino thing, I feel like, is a very unusual and not necessarily and and clunky diversion from the main plot and the and the the sort of general feeling that the plot is going in a direction but i don't know what direction that 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 is Mm. so and so when things like get jarred Mm -hmm. uh i couldn't figure it out so i have to see it again i plan on seeing it with my brother okay uh, so, and then by that time, like just with the Force Awakens, I'll have like a, a better handle on some of my criticisms from it. But I mean, I still feel pretty good about it. Okay, yeah, that's a good way to put it. In a sense, you're you're like a more reasonable version of the guy listening to the new Bob Dylan goes electric. <laughs> I like this if you and think... not freaking out. You're kind of like, what? What is this? What? What? Where? What? Uh... 
Oh, I get it now. Right. And this oh. is why I feel excited about Ryan Johnson. Yeah. Uh, because he did something very, uh, he, he kept me, he held me in suspense for a very long time and he did something a little different. And then when, uh, and then when he did things that were more familiar, he, he hit the nail right on the head. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, I'm glad he's doing another trilogy. I'm glad that's in the works. It's just, you know, you, uh, they actually did take a chance on a star Wars movie though. Yeah. I don't think anybody can say that they were playing it that's safe no i think that they were they actually decided okay let's see what this guy actually comes up with who goes off and writes his own script he you know maybe there are other story people at star wars that we don't know about but um uh but we're you know we're not meddling in the final edit we're gonna let him do what he needs to do and he made a very he made a a movie i would call like it was a little more it was more idiosyncratic Mm. than some of the other films that could be a good way to put it um yeah and i actually i don't know for me i i got on board with luke kind of right away because huh. I, I i saw that he it's like i could see a little bit of like a glimmer in his eye maybe that was just mark hamill being awesome in his performance maybe, yeah like you know that moment where he like takes the drink of the green milk and like he <laughs> gives a look to ray and i was just like yeah that's luke uh, <laughs> you know, it's somewhere in there. I gotta Luke. watch the uh, the green milk scene again. Oh man, that that's gonna be like, I want to watch. Uh, I watched uh, Force Awakens with Rift Tracks uh, about a year or so ago, which is which was kind of fun. I almost want to watch Rift Tracks with Last Jedi just to see what they say in that no, don't moment. Worry. Don't worry, you'll get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um... But yeah, I'm 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 really I'm really excited. Uh, you know where where he takes the series. Oh. Not sure I'm totally excited where J.J. Abrams takes it, but I know we talked a little bit about that on the other yeah, episode. We, we've talked enough about J.J. Um, Abrams. Yeah. So I, to and to those people on the internet, again, I just say, you know, chill out, stop, and also stop sending uh, uh, the actress who plays Rose. It was Kelly Marie, Marie Tran. Yeah. Right. Stop sending her hate mail. Stop sending hate mail. Yeah, but to no, anybody, well, especially please. to her. Like, there's been she's gotten like lots of racist and sexist uh, messages, and you know she's Jeez. the first uh, woman of color in uh, a Star Wars to have a lead in a Star Wars movie. Right. Like when you think, like I can't think of another one. I mean, I can't think of one. Yeah, I mean you've had male well, there was leads. that uh, there was that green Twilight girl in, Ret- in Return of the Jedi, but uh, she had like I don't one scene. <laughs> you know what's kind of cool about that? Though? Oh yeah, that's not a lead. Never mind. Yeah. You know what's a little piece of trivia on that? When they did the special edition of Return of the Jedi. Oh um, god. No, no, no. But th- this is kind <laughs> of uh, this is like the one one of the nice things in it. They shot like a tiny extra bit where, like, because Jabba pushes on like the lever to drop her into the rancor pit. Right. And originally in the movie, he just presses the lever, she drops down, that's it. Yeah. But they decided, let's show like her, you know, <coughs> fall down the rancor pit. And she's like, her reaction is like the rancor's about to come out. Um, and they got, and the actress, this was like uh, 14 or so years after. Return of the Jedi came out, she was in the exact same shape and looked almost exactly like how she did then. Wow. So they put her her into the makeup and, like, they didn't have to CGI it or do anything like that. Huh. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was kind of cool to find that out. 
Um, they, you know, it was like she got to, she was like the one. Didn't really add much to the film. She was the one <laughs> actor who filmed a new scene for the new Star Wars that wasn't in like a, you know, like a a costume or something. Like and that. now everyone hates the special editions. Oh man, you're uh, so <laughs> uh, you're, you're you're just reminding me that on um, the Sunday after we uh, recorded, I actually I rewatched uh, a New Hope on TV. Yeah, they showed all of the six episodes on TV in like a marathon TNT one on on Sunday. Sure, um, and I rewatched New Hope. Uh, that scene with Jabba is painful. It is painful. Like uh, I, I, I get the I get the idea of putting in some bits from the movie that weren't in there before. Um, that was one that you just flat out not only didn't need. But the way that you animate in Jabba, I think that that is actually even worse than Greedo shooting first. It's pretty awful. It, it's it's easy to pick on Greedo shooting first because it's one little thing in an otherwise excellent scene. It's yeah. It's, it's you still, could say that yeah. everything in the Jabba scene is terrible. So what do you pick out? Yeah, I mean, you added like. You know, two seconds of film in that Greedo scene. Okay, it. You can argue about what it does to Han's character and this and that. And there's been a lot of heated discussion about that over the years. But that Jabba scene is like five minutes, yeah. and it stops the film dead, and it's redundant. And it also, if you're watching the Star and Jabba's Wars, Jabba's a character who doesn't come back in the film. Well, it, it, it he doesn't come back, but not also until it, two, two films later. It's pure fan service for people who watched the films when they were originally released, but it breaks up the. I hate to use this word, but kind of like the magic of watching those films <laughs> in a certain order. Because yeah. the way when they first introduced Jabba the Hutt and Return of the Jedi, it's meant to be like a whoa, so this is what he looks like. Yeah. You know, like they first show him Return of the Jedi and he's like this gigantic slug. And it it's supposed to make an impression on you. At, you know, it's 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 presented as a character introduction. If you're watching the films now in order and haven't seen them before, if you're like a kid, that scene in New Hope is just... Bleh. And then they, like, they put in Bob, Boba Fett in there too for a second. Because like, oh my god, Boba Fett! Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Boba Fett. Like... <laughs> <laughs> you're about to kick him into the Sarlacc pit. I, I don't hate Boba Fett. I take issue with I take issue with people who feel strongly about. Boba yes, Fett. I have strong. I I feel strongly about people who've created him into this like great badass character when he's really not. He's just another guy in a mask in these movies. Yeah, and what's funny then is how they I kind of paralleled that in the new trilogy with Captain Phasma. <laughs> well, that's. All right. <laughs> I know, if you, you would like to listen to more episodes of the Jack and Andrew Star Wars podcast, yeah. uh, f- send us an email right, on your right. website to uh, gmail.com slash back Star Wars. <laughs> you don't know how to say emails. I don't know. All right, all right, all right. Uh, just, uh, I'm going to talk about a couple of the movies I watched recently, though, before we okay, move on. Okay, yeah, let's do it. All right. Um, I saw The Shape of Water. Good. Yeah, have you heard much about this movie? I saw one middling review, but that's it. Oh, no, this movie's great. Great. Oh, yeah. I'm glad to hear it. How's Michael Shannon? 
he is at his most Michael Shannon East. This is not. Um, now you weren't there for this. Uh, for those listening, uh, uh, one night uh, after I think this was after after we watched uh, Justice League, you 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 left, but then uh, I hung out with Corey and Mac- Matthew Catania, and we watched this movie. Oh, you mean guest star Matt? Yes, guest star Matt. We watched a film called Pottersville with Michael Shannon. Let me actually make this a double Michael Shannon review for you. But I'll, <laughs> but I'll, get, through po- but I'll get through Pottersville really quick. Pottersville is a movie that, if I tell you what, what premise, you might think that you want, need to watch it immediately. Okay. Don't. It's a movie about... Wait a second. It's a movie where Michael Shannon works in a small town and... Gets mistaken for Bigfoot. I need to watch this film right now. Yeah, you think that sounds amazing, and it, but it's not. It's crap. Why is it crap? Okay, here's why it's crap. Because <laughs> it um it it starts off kind of interesting and kind of crazy because like they introduce this story thread where like Michael Shan's character works at like a like a small town uh, convenience store or something like that. It's something else. I forget the, what kind of convenience store. store. Yeah, it's a conveniency type store. He sells like knickknacks or something like that. And um, he goes home one day and finds that his uh, uh, girlfriend or it might be his wife uh, is a furry. And right. So there are actually things involving furries in this movie too. Like he discovers his girlfriend is uh, with a furry and there's this whole, whole furry club. There's not really a sexual component to it, though. Not all furries are sexual. Maybe not. Although I, I thought it would have been interesting if they went that way. So Michael Shannon gets drunk, throws on a uh, a, a costume, and uh, is like kind of roaming around at night and is mistaken for Bigfoot by the townspeople. And he can't just come out and explain to people that, you know, I, I just did this... Yeah, I'm Michael Shannon. I just did this jump thing. I shouldn't have done it. It was kind of lame. No, they immediately then it, it's like they call in like a a reality show that that is tra- hunts Bigfoot comes in and tries to. All find this Bigfoot. sounds great so far. It sounds great on paper. In execution, it's just it, it's trying too hard to be funny. Mm. It needed to be its own tempo. It needed to be its own thing. And it was trying you, too you hard to, to be clever. You need to step back and give it room to yeah, breathe. It, yeah, it didn't have room to breathe. It was true, trying too hard to be quirky. The music score, it was also one of those music uh, compositions that sounded like the composer thought he was hilarious. And was, yeah. Andrew just did a thing, which I don't know if that caught a mic. Can you do that again? Boom. Yeah, kind of like that. Or the like, timpani. Or you hear like a... I don't know, something yeah. like that. And it's just... It felt like a wasted opportunity. It felt like it was stretched out to be a feature-length film. And Michael Shannon even wasn't that great in it. I don't know. It, it Poor Michael Shannon. But in The Shape of Water, he redeems himself because he's amazing in the movie. He plays... Uh, this guy who uh, has brought uh, a uh, an amphibian man monster from South America and brought him to this uh, uh, facility in America. I'm Kevin Lansley. I work for the government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's like... Where's the giant, Mansley? Yeah, as he says in the movie, <laughs> I dragged him myself from South America. 
we didn't really get along too well. <laughs> Something about Michael Shannon I want to mention. One thing I like about Michael Shannon is that he's one of our... jaw. Well, yeah, but he's one of our few actors who I feel like you can imitate pretty well and has, like, this persona to him. This was, like... Because this was something that um, on uh, Gilbert Gottfried brought up on his podcast, that back in, you know, the old days of movies and the golden age, you had, like, these personalities that weren't... You couldn't put them into, like, a clean space. They You know, people like Bogart and... James Cagney and Edward G. Robinson and Jimmy Stewart even. These people who you can immediately imitate because they sound a little goofy. They sound a little bit off kilter. They're not like... Even Jimmy Cagney, as as cool and smooth as he is, he's got like this tension about him where he's like, he feels wound up. Even though he's, even when he's like doing George M. Cohan. Yeah. He's got this tension to his speech where it's like he's, he's a bit wired up. Yeah, so I feel like Michael Shannon's the first guy, maybe since like Nicholson or someone, who you can do a pretty good imitation of, and uh, maybe Nicholas Cage to an extent is a little bit like that too. But because like because Godfrey brought up like if you have somebody like Tom Hanks or uh, or George Clooney, I mean you could try doing an imitation of them, but they're just a little bit too normal. Right. They're a little bit too... Tom Hanks is very normal. Yeah. George Clooney is really handsome, but he also sounds very normal. And I mean, you can do a Tom Hanks imitation, but it's not the same way that, you know, people used to have careers imitating, like, Bogart and right. th- these actual these actors. But Michael Shannon, he comes onto a scene and you can immediately imitate him. Especially yeah. his eyes. The way he looks at you. I'm giving Andrew a look right now. It says you're gonna go into that facility, and uh, <laughs> oh man, he's great in the movie. I just, uh, I uh, it, it the way that Guillermo del Toro puts together this story is just really wonderful. I uh, now there's a possible setback if you watch the movie, and it's really kind of like a romance story. It's it's a fair. It's he he called it a fairy tale for modern times. Um, or, or un- much or, better than no, bear skin. <laughs> yes, yes. By yes. the way, it's not an urban fairy tale. Listen to our, our uh, what the devil, uh, what is, the devil that? is that episode about bear skin, an urban fairy tale. You won't be sorry. Starring the in starring the imitable Tom Waits. Indeed. Yeah. Um. God of Exactly. But um. <laughs> but no. It, it, at the center of this, you have uh, the, uh, Sally Hawkins is this woman who's mute. And she works as a janitor at this facility, and she she somehow she and uh, the another janitor she works with, so, you know, are have to clean up a room. And this amphibian man, who's suited by Doug Jones, uh, of course, yes, of course he is. Um, you know, she sees him and immediately feels empathy for him. Here's like this other ca- creature who's been mistreated, and you know, she feels all this sympathy for him, and. I guess if you don't feel some emotion for their relationship, you might not buy into the movie as much. Well, yeah. Um, I, I, I ultimately did. I just found... Uh, uh, Guillermo del Toro has talked about in interviews that he told the actress Sally Hawkins to watch lots of uh, uh, Charlie Chaplin and uh, Harold Lloyd and Stan Laurel uh, just so she, she could get like silent film acting really down. And you could feel that with these, because like again, the amphibian man doesn't talk either. No. Um, but what's great though is that yeah, so they eventually have this 
almost you could say romantic relationship. Sure. Which leads to other things. Uh, I, I won't even, you know, you, you take a guess what I'm referring to. I'm an adult and I understand innuendo. <laughs> yes. Um, but, uh, uh, but they still treat them him that you know he is this character that has a soul. He might even be kind of godlike. They they kind of show that. Mm-hmm. But he's also a creature who, you know, if you really piss him off, he will bite your fingers off. Right. Um, and I like that that the, he he makes him like a real creature, and yet you still have a love and sim- empathy for him and. Sure. Oh, just everything about this movie is beautiful. He, he, he's a humanized creature, like King Kong, or like... Uh... Yeah, it's a good way to put it. This is like Guillermo del Toro saying, you don't think that you could fall for the creature from the Black Lagoon? I'll show you. Yeah. <laughs> I think the creature from the Black Lagoon is sexy as hell. Right. And God bless Guillermo del Toro for that. Indeed. Yeah. So, go see this movie. There are a lot of reasons for God to bless Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, and I feel happy for him. He he's he said in interviews that this is, like, the film that he's most happy with, that he's made yet. Um, I don't know, that could be just be, like, because he just made it. Wow. But, um... It's certainly... Uh, uh, it's... I mean, it, it it has its roots in other sources in Hollywood, but yeah. still, it's something different in this modern day. Yeah, well, well, he, he tried to show... He tried to say that he's making... Something that is also very... its The movie's also very relevant to today, too. Like, as far as how, how it's depicting its Gilman. time. Well, Gilman, no. But also, it's set in 1962 Cold War uh, era America. It also is dealing with uh, homophobia and racism and definite sexism there. Michael Shannon, at one point, just straight up sexually harasses uh, Sally Hawkins. Jeez. And... Um, you know, he makes comments like he, he sees Octavia Spencer, uh, and he, you know, he says, uh, he says to her, do you think that God made, um, you know, you know, that amphibian man, his image? And she's like, I don't know, sir. Well, you know, you definitely make God made me in his image. Maybe me more than you. (laughs) He says something to that effect. And, (laughs) oh man, it's just, uh. I can't. I could go on and on about this movie, but it's. Uh, I can't. If God wait to turned see it again. out to be like a, a black-eyed fish man. Yeah, I think I would. I, I think I would lose it. Yeah, <laughs> you know. I mean, I'm not about to gush the way that some of the people gushing about Star Wars do it, but uh, this is like that kind of movie. that's just really uh, beautiful. Glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll check it out when it comes out on DVD. Yeah. Uh, is there a bit anything recently that you've watched that you want to talk about? I watched It's a Wonderful Life again. <laughs> hey, here's a, a tradition here. Every year we have to talk about It's a Wonderful Life right after Christmas. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life is just so rewarding because usually I do see something new and or realize something about a certain scene or a certain performance whenever I watch it. It's kind of like your lifelong cinema immersion tank. Yeah, in a way. Uh for those of you who don't know, my family is uh, is predisposed to watch It's a Wonderful Life every Christmas Eve. It's like one of the movies that you would say that your family actually sits around and watches. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a tradition. And uh, last year I talked about Jimmy Stewart's intensity. Uh, I saw that again in in this. You know, it's a, it, it it really just hammers home Jimmy Stewart's acting talents. Like, right. He right. seems like this very. Uh, ch- 
uh, not like charming in the sense of like, oh, he's so handsome, so so gorgeous. Yes. He he, you know, he sees he's this very friendly person, but in a lot of his roles, he's just really charged with this intensity, it, and and it comes out in It's a Wonderful Life in lots of different ways. Yeah. But the thing that really struck me this time is Donna Reed. Okay. Uh, especially in that scene where George Bailey and his uncle have lost that eight thousand dollars. Yeah. And. George goes home, and instantly when Donna Reed, uh, his wife Mary, comes to meet him, she knows something's wrong. Like, he, he's forgotten his coat, he's covered in snow, and yeah. he, he's forgotten the wreath. And he, she starts talking about him to cheer him up. Because because as I realized this, she's lived with him this long to know that he was, he works such a stressful job that something must be off at work. Yeah. As that scene goes on in the house where he, she sees him like break down just a little bit and grab his kid and just hold him that way in that such that such that desperate uh look she sees him and says nothing doesn't bring it up but she knows okay something's really wrong and as he gets more and more agitated she tries to pull him away Mm -hmm. from the kids to get him somewhere in the back because she wants him to open up and talk about what's going on yes uh, and it doesn't work because the kids follow him in the way that kids do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Where they, you know, <laughs> they they don't really pick up on the. They scene don't though. pick up on the on the on the scenes. Like his oldest son wants him wants to tell him things, and his youngest son is just like hanging on to him. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I find that charming too. It's like. His family is such a small part of that film, yeah. but they seem genuine. Well, everybody remembers the ending with, you know, look, Daddy, every time an angel has, you know, yeah. whatever, that, that whole line. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets his yeah. wings. But all those kids are, are great. Yeah, I sometimes, I've kind of forgotten a little bit of the kids, because been a while since right. I but And throughout that scene, up until the point where he, like, finally blows up and storms out of the house, yeah. like, she... Like Mary is trying to get him alone so he will talk about what's going right. on, and she's just like she's not trying to push him, she's not trying to you know dig, but she's just like talking like normal, trying to calm him down, and hopefully just get him to a point where he could. And it just never happens. Yeah, and it, it and it's it, it feels like such a such a great piece of character work and such a great progression of events in that yeah. scene, and it's it's just a well put together scene. Here's an interesting thing with It's a Wonderful Life. I don't know if you've ever seen the uh the poster no for the movie the poster for the movie it it's so incongruous with how the movie actually is actually my i think some my one of my (laughs) doesn't have a picture of a vampire on it (laughs) no it (laughs) did oh my god a vampire oh my god (laughs) i don't know no no it it, the, the thing is like let me show you the, the the poster for the movie because it's uh where where is this thing it's it's like it it, it the thing is when you watch the movie it's really more complex than than anybody really expects when they think of like Frank Capra when when they ha- if you see like an original trailer for it's a wonderful life it doesn't say anything about christmas or about the whole end no, part it's with just, pottersville no yeah it. it's just about him it's 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 basically like a, a picture of a man's life as that's the way it's presented and the the real hook of the film isn't even you, in the advertising here, here here's the poster yeah i just showed a picture of the, of the poster for the movie it looks like uh, a cheery you know, a little romantic comedy, and it's kind of almost like a noir at times. At times, there there are lots of great touches, and it's a wonderful. Yeah, you know, it's a noir fantasy 
you know, touches into horror a little bit and like that sort of Twilight Zoney horror. Where yeah, it's like something weird happens, like by and, by a quirk of fate or by the intervention of uh, and and it's just like the poster is. I don't know not how you ad- I don't know how you advertise that because that's only one third of like less than a third of the film. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, I talk about it's a wonderful life. Everything, the, the most interesting thing to it about to mm-hmm. me about it is that. The film is two thirds uh, exposition. <laughs> when I watched it, I I didn't expect it to take so long to get to the whole "you were never born" part of it. Right. I thought that happened earlier because I had I had seen that trope in other things. I, like I had seen like the "It's a Wonderful Life" story shown in it, other things. It, it, it's it, it's a trope that's been parodied and redone over and over again. It's like it's it's like a Christmas Carol or right. like. A, or uh, mm. you know that so many of those like things that yeah. get pulled up again. Oh, um, speaking of which, to bring up something though that I that you just reminded me that uh, on Christmas, um, I watched uh, Scrooge for oh, the first I time. Seen it? You're, no, yeah. Do you know what it's about? Bill Murray is Scrooge. Bill, Mur- yeah, kind of. I mean, he doesn't have the Scrooge name. It's like a '80s, late '80s modern take on the Scrooge story, and I had a lot of fun watching it. Like I. There, there is a uh, there is a Christmas Carol version called Scrooge, which is this English production. Sure, I've and seen it. Has it. Alec Guinness as oh, Jacob se- Marley. I haven't. Did I? I don't think I've seen that one. Maybe is that's that, a different. No, one. No, I think that one's from the seventies. I've seen the one that's the fa- famous one with like Alistair Sim. I think is that right. name. Oh wait, I think that's a different one. But yeah. there's there's a different Christmas Carol version where it, it's Alec Guinness. In that role, and he, he actually he appears and, to someone as a ghost, and, and he's, <laughs> but and he's hilarious Scrooge, in it. Scrooge, Espe- you will go to the Dagobah the- system. Yeah. <laughs> you will be visited by three spirits, Luke. <laughs> okay. Anyway, but uh, go on. Scrooge. Yeah, yeah, Scrooge. It, it um, like I saw like a couple of negative reviews after I watched the movie. It said that the film was like mean spirited or, or something like that. And I didn't really get that feeling as much. Like to me, it was really about this super oop, super duper, like cynical character. And, and Bill Murray just plays up like this guy to the point of just where it's ridiculous. Like I, that's Bill Murray's career. Well, it's his career, <laughs> but like this performance, um, it almost reminded me a tiny bit of, do you ever see the movie vampires kiss? No. Oh. oh wait a minute! With Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage. Oh thinks, yeah. I'm a vampire. I'm a vampire. I'm a vampire. <laughs> I, I I I couldn't place the title. There was a tiny bit of that in this movie, like, just like <laughs> the way that he like his his Bob Cratchit is uh, played by Alfre Woodard, and um and like there's a scene where he you know she she needs to go she needs to leave work early like to get take her kid to like a doctor and it was like two months appointment and the way bill murray like yells at her to like stay to help him do stuff i thought of like nicholas cage yelling at his secretary in vampire it's too late yeah too late yeah exactly almost to that point oh like more like bill murray does right um excellent cast that's in the movie weird people that pop up there's a point where Bill Murray's walking on the street and Miles Davis is playing saxophone. What? And he's playing like Jingle Bells or something like Christmas song like that. And um, 
Bill Murray drops a cigarette butt into the horn of his saxophone. Or no, something. he doesn't quite do that. He he makes some snide comment about the Christmas music though. Uh, Bobcat Goldthwait is in the movie <laughs> as like a guy who is fired by Scrooge, like the Bill Murray Scrooge, and spends the whole movie getting drunk and. Uh, like continuously being dumped on by Bill Murray at various points <laughs> to, until he gets a gun to chase after him. Duh. Um, you have that. You have um, oh, who else was in it? Like, oh, just all all sorts of people. Oh, Robert Mitchum plays uh. Bill Murray's boss. Ah. And if you've ever wanted to hear Robert Mitchum call someone a butthead, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I didn't before, but I want to now. You, you, yeah, abs. Oh, yeah, I, I just sold it, didn't I? You did. Robert Mitchum Butthead. Um, it was a funny movie. It was a good one because I hadn't seen it, and I, I've owned it for years. And I just suddenly saw it on my shelf. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna watch Scrooged, and um, you know, and uh, and your yeah, life is better. It is a little better. I mean, I've, I've filled up a much open Bill Murray sore in my life. All right. Um. Yeah, I've seen. I've, I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff recently. Uh, um, God, I'm trying to think of what else uh, I'd want to mention here. Uh, oh, I watched uh, the movie Gilda for the first time. Okay, you ever heard of that? Yes. Rita Hayworth. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You understand why Andy <laughs> Dufresne had a poster of her? Sure. Yeah, you understand why yeah poster of her. Always... Andy Dufresne, by the way, is a mutual friend of mine and Jack's. Yeah, he uh, he he made his way to the Pacific. Right. Um, yeah, that reminds me. He looks me like of... a, a stiff breeze would blow him over. You know, that reminds me of something. Like I was, I was talking to my brother recently about uh, things in movies that are dumb that we just kind of take for granted. Like in the Shawshank Redemption, what kind of poster is able to hang up on a wall for like twenty years? It's not about the poster. Like that. <laughs> but keep in mind, he also had different posters throughout that film. Yeah, but doesn't someone... The last one that he, he had I know, it has, he has Raquel, Raquel Wells from uh, whatever. I thought he had like, just like two posters. I, I think he had at least three. Hmm, I don't remember the third one. But I don't know. I don't know, it was just like one Something of Something bridged things. Rita Hayworth and Raquel Welch, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um... Uh, or anyway, so uh, Gilda is uh, very. <laughs> you want to talk about more. implausible things? How about a man using a small rock hammer to dig a tunnel through a wall? Well, there's that absolutely. <laughs> you or, accepted that. I well, yeah. Well, except that you also can. You also accept like the guy who overheard the guy who really killed Andy Dufresne's wife is you know happens to come to the jail and becomes friends with Andy Dufresne. Out of all the prisoners at that jail. Well, yeah, but eventually they turn that coincidence into tragedy. They do, but... If, if, if there's a coincidence, if it turns out for good, then it seems contrived. If it turns out for bad, then it se- then it fits perfectly. Hmm. We're, we're much more it's willing still a coincidence, to accept, though. We're, we're much more willing to accept coincidental, coincidental harm than coincidental good. Hmm. I guess... I don't know. No, no. I mean, right. Again, I, I'm not. I'm. Into, I still buy into the movie. It was just an interesting point, man. Um, okay. Yeah, but Gilda was was really well done. Sure. Fascinating point, Andrew. Thank oh, you. My, Corey just popped yeah. over the wifely here. Wifely duties, podcast. Corey. What are you doing here? <laughs> so what, I live here. It's one of my wifely duties. So what did you think was a good? So you thought that was a good point? The thing I said about made? coincidental. Yeah, uh, the point that we are more likely to reject 
coincidence that leads to a positive plot outcome as hmm. opposed to a negative plot okay. outcome. Okay, right. It's something I had never thought about before, but yeah. I'm intrigued. It's like, your point. yeah, thank you. Yeah. It, it, it kind of just works out that way. I, I'd love to give an example, but right now I'm just like... I'm so stunned by my own brilliance. <laughs> it I give you a pat on the back for that. Thanks. There we go. Okay. Um, I'll leave you too. All right. I don't know what else to say much about Guild except it's one of these uh, film Aside from movies. Rita Hayworth is hot? Yeah. Also, uh, well, uh, Glenn Ford is the, the man in the movie who falls for her Glenn pretty Ford. hard. How do I know that? Uh, I think man. he was Pa Kent in Superman. Okay. He's also been in a number of movies. If you ever seen uh, The Big Heat, he's in that. Um, and, and it's one of those movies that uh, is very interesting too. Like because of, like of the dynamic it has, it's like uh, a love triangle, and it's like these two men kind of fighting over Rita Hayworth. Uh, but they're not like they do. Yeah, but they're not fighting over her in such a way where it gets ridiculous. It's more like subtle power play moments where like the guy like he Glenn Ford works for the guy who's married to Rita Hayworth and um you you, you kind of think oh, oh I know where this is going uh you know like if the boss asks the guy to watch his wife or you know take her around right um they're gonna fall in love yeah it's like out of Pulp Fiction or something but uh or like a girl can't help it oh yeah All right. All right um but uh but it's a little bit more. Pulp twist- Fiction is the better example. Yeah, but it's a little more twisty than that. Like the way that you end up seeing them, and and I didn't really pick up on this right away. But on the I watched it on like a Criterion DVD, and there was this guy on it who I think is like a film noir expert. This guy Eddie Muller, who talked about how there there's really- Eddie Muller sounds like a film noir character. Yeah, he does. It's, hey, it's yeah. great that there's a film noir character that is an expert on film noir. Listen, I, I don't want any trouble. You, you, I, I didn't know the guy, but you got to talk to yeah. Eddie Muller. <laughs> he, he, he knew him. He was like his best friend. <laughs> <laughs> I stabbed Eddie Muller in the back. He had it coming. Yeah. Um, he pops up sometimes on TCM as well. Uh, he, uh, he made a point about like, there's like this gay subtext in hmm. the film where it, it he, you know, or maybe he, that Glenn Ford might be actually bisexual, but obviously they can't say that in a film no. in 1946. But if you're able to kind of read super in between the lines, you almost see how like Glenn Ford's character is almost like he's most happiest when he gets to be alone with his boss, and then you know Rita Hayworth comes in and oh. and, and her character and in the film they make it a little bit twisty because. They she he comes to work and doesn't know that he's married to Rhea Hayworth, and apparently Glenn Ford was married to Rhea Hay was married to Gilda oh. before like earlier in the in another time before the movie started, so it adds to the weirdness and right. you know and God yeah you know, well Rhea Hayworth she's also a good actress that helps things too it's not just sure. that she's you know the most like gorgeous woman of like her time in film which which she kind of is. Uh, but given the choice between the two of them, would you rather have Rita Hayworth or Myrna Loy? <sighs> ah, I got you now, don't I? I well, it's <laughs> assuming that women were uh, things that you could uh, buy or barter for. <laughs> oh, sure. In in the world where men have to answer to no ch- consequences at all, right? Wow, well, Corey just yelled and said, "Rita, quiet Hayworth. you." Um, 
in in the world in the very sad and terrible world where Corey doesn't exist, I would probably marry Myrna Loy. I don't know but if Rita I would... Hayworth would be your mistress. Mm. Okay, Maybe. clearly this is amenable to you. Yeah, you know what's crazy? No. So Orson Welles was married to Rita Hayworth and cheated on her. What? Yeah. Oh, come on. Who does that? I mean, you might almost want to say it first. Hey, Rhea Hayworth, she she got to, you know, she she uh, she got quite a dish with that Orson Welles. Yeah, I know. You know, he, he was a pretty good catch, but then he goes cheats on her. Who does that? That's oh. when you. That's like when you find out these actors who are married to these you know supermodels or the, you know super attractive women who still cheat on them. It's frustrating. It's 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 odd, you know. It's like, are you really not getting enough, guys? All right, that's, that's relationships, man. Relationships, man. Um, if nothing else, you need to watch it also for uh, when Rita Hayworth twice does the number uh, "Put the Blame on Mame." Mm. I don't know if you've ever seen her perform that. I have not. Oh, it's it's good. <laughs> well, she. It's interesting because it's almost like the like when you watch Dirty Harry and you don't know going in that he does the. Uh, Magnum 44 Magnum speech twice. Um, kind of similar to how, again, Pulp Fiction, the way that he does the Ezekiel speech twice. Right. And each time he does it, it has a different meaning. Uh, and Gilda, she sings the song Put the Blame on Mame for the first time. She's playing like, she's an acoustic, she's playing an acoustic guitar and singing it. And it's just her and this other guy in like the em- an empty nightclub. And it's very intimate and kind of nice and soft. Then the second time she does it, it's near the end of the movie. And the context around why she's performing it is, you know, really amazing. All right. Uh, that's all I'll say about it. And, uh, yeah, God. Yeah, there, there's a reason why, yeah, again, she's on a poster on a prison wall. Um, all right. A little bit of history. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, uh, I don't know, should we take a break now? or Let's should we take go a break. Th- I right. have to stop sitting. All right, so we'll take a break. When we come back, uh, we have a kind of very special announcement here on the Wage of Cinema that you might want to listen to, so stay tuned. When they had the earthquake in San Francisco back in 1906, they said that old Mother Nature was up to her old tricks. That's the story that went around, but here's the real lowdown. Put the blame on Maine, boy. Put the blame on Maine. 